0: If you come back in here, I'm going to hit you with so many rights, you're going to beg for a left. Welcome to Filmstrip. Featuring Ron. You're beginning to irritate me.
1: And Jay.
0: Oh man, nobody knows how to find him.
1: He's, He's on the move all the time.
0: Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay.
1: And I am Ron. And
0: this is our review of Invasion USA, starring Chuck Norris, Richard Lynch, Melissa Prophet, and Alex Colon. Directed by Joseph Zito. Released in 1985 on a budget of $12 million, all spent on C4. It grossed $17.5 million at the box office. Now, we kind of teased that we were going to do this one back a few weeks ago. We had done the American Ninja Quadrilogy, I guess we want to call that. Sure. And uh, yeah, and so we you know, said, hey, let's, let's go out here and, and pick up these two films because I had no idea that Invasion USA had a sequel. And indeed it does. Well, And I have strong memories of seeing this as a kid. I think my dad rented it for me because he knew I liked Chuck Norris and he thought I would dig the Chuck Norris movies. It was Chuck Norris holding two Uzis on the, I think it's the poster or whatever to Mac 10s. And I remember watching this and not really getting it. And I remember, <laughs> I remember my father going, this is a little darker than I thought it was going to be. And I know I saw it several times. It was a Showtime and stuff, you know, growing up. And I, I, I know I've seen it a lot, but I don't know that I'd ever paid attention to it critically until we decided to review it here. I ended up watching it a couple of times for this, because I'll be honest with you, I, I really thought I remembered this film, and I really did not.
1: I, I remembered one thing about it, and that was the Blues Brothers pickup uh, pickup tr- pick truck driving through the mall scene.
0: Uh, who could forget that? So <laughs> definitely a uh, a memorable scene. But I, I, like I said, I did see this one. Uh, you know, at a young age, probably younger than I should have been. But I did see it. When did you first pick up on uh, on a- Invasion USA?
1: No, I don't think I saw this one until a lot later. Like I remember more like the missing an action he kind of chuck Norris flicks that were yeah uh, more common on TV uh so i don't think i caught this one until i was already you know relatively uh, probably old, significantly older than you were cuz I, I i was probably a teenager catching it on cable uh, you know, entranced by the idea of Chuck Norris firing two micro-Uzis.
0: <laughs> Indeed. I mean, what, how can that not get anyone on? I mean, come on. Uh, it, but and oddly enough, he only has those for a very short amount of time in the film. You'd think it's his main weapon. It's really not. So um, he, And the way he fires them so indiscriminately at things, it's kind of, I don't know. We'll talk about it as we get into it. But, you know, again, I think you and I are kind of making a tour de force through either every Golden Globus action film ever made or or ones that at least should have been. So, (laughs) at different times. Is this this another Golden Globus film? Is this a canon? This is canon films again, right?
1: Yes, this this is definitely another canon film. uh, In case you couldn't tell by the fact that they shot it in the swamp.
0: It literally is shot in the Southeast. Now that's the funny thing to me. I did not pick up on any of that as a kid and seeing this now, I'm like, well, I think I've driven through most of these places and my Atlanta has changed quite a bit since 1984 and 85. I mean, Traffic's still bad, but sheesh. I mean, that it's amazing <laughs> some of the stuff that goes uh, – and what's, what gets me about this movie, what really – I mean, just – I don't know. is laugh out loud funny to me is this was released in the early fall. It came out like September or October-ish, but it's like set partially I think at Christmas or something. At least it seems that way.
1: It, very, it seems like a very – yeah, it seems like it's a very Christmas-centric movie. Because I can't explain why there would be so many people at the mall, otherwise, yeah, I know like shopping, and like people are dressed <laughs>
0: in the deep south, dressed for deep winter now, I know you grew up in the South in Kentucky, but that's even different geography than like where I grew up and where like Anna's from where it's really hot like all the time, all the way up to like November or so, so we don't wear sweaters <laughs> at Christmas time
1: <laughs> I mean it's just not the christmas done. the shirt
0: yeah exactly yeah i got my I got my Christmas running shorts on. <laughs> I mean, that's generally how that goes. I don't. I don't. Uh, I don't see it any other way. So I, that was funny to me, but certainly a lot for us to get into here. And I want to say this for a Golden Globus flick, twelve million dollars. I just want to know how much of that Chuck got, because I mean, they had to have paid him some a serious amount of that money. It's not on the screen unless, like I joked, they did use it all on the uh, the plastique.
1: Yeah, it's probably half plastique, half Chuck Norris.
0: I it really it is uh stunning.
1: I mean, he it's, was a, he was a big star at this point. I mean Oh yeah. Not that he's not, you know, a fairly big star now or at least a very popular internet meme. I'm
0: going to say yeah, he's his own meme now, man. He's like a that's above stardom. I mean, when you've got that, you're you're doing it all.
1: I did like his uh cameo in ex, his extended cameo in Expendables 2 where he's invasion he's doing the invasion USA thing but with two uh, M16 lookalikes. Instead of the two micro micro-Uzis.
0: I think he has more lines and expendables too than he does in this movie, and he's the star, so um, I, I mean really i't uh, it's amazing the um, lack of dialogue in this film. Uh, I guess we'll we'll get into that as we go, but why don't, uh, why don't I take a, a shot at the yield plot summary this time, and uh, I, we'll talk about it uh, in more detail as we get into it. So here's the deal about invasion USA. You have to put yourself in a mindset, folks, of like the pre 9 11, I think even like the pre Clinton years, what America was like. Okay. And why this would have shocked everyone to death. Because here's what I'm, what I'm about to read to you now will seem so farcical, but in 1985, this was passed for high drama. I'm going to tell you. A group of terrorists unleash a series of violent attacks in the the southeastern United States. Their leader, a mysterious man named Rostov, is haunted by dreams of the CIA agent he once faced and escaped barely. That agent, the now-retired and reclusive Matt Hunter, is hiding out in Florida's Everglades. When Rostov's troops attack, the CIA reaches out to Hunter, and Rostov even makes an attempt on his old adversary. Drawn back into the tradecraft he swore to abandon, Hunter goes about thwarting the guerrillas Attempts to further disrupt American life by attacking people in their communities. While the U.S.'s 50 governors form a centralized task force in Atlanta that take on the bulk of the threat, Hunter and Rostov play cat and mouse in an office building downtown. Eventually, Hunter sneaks up behind Rostov and shoots him with a rocket launcher, uttering for the 150th time, It's time, before Rostov can fire his own. The guerrilla troops are defeated by the military, and Hunter stares out the window as Rostov's remains burn into the night, and the credits roll. And that's about as quick as I can sum up what goes down in Invasion USA. And I think we just have to start from the beginning here, Ron. And, I I mean, this is a, a, a very jarring beginning to this film. You see these Cuban refugees, you know, on a boat sailing for the United States, and they're met up with the U.S. Coast Guard, who then opened fire upon them and lay waste to them, so that they can steal what looks to be like uh, about a hundred kilos of coke off the bottom of the boat.
1: Yeah, because clearly it's the '80s. Every subplot has to involve cocaine.
0: It's coming some, in Miami. I mean, Billy Corbin, right. the great documentary filmmaker, would agree with us that this is this is true to life for Miami. <laughs> so. Yeah, but, you know, really, uh, I mean, talk about throwing you out of your seat. You know, you have Richard Lynch, I mean, who is most assuredly not a foreigner, but has played a Russian (laughs) so many times that I used to believe he really was one until many years later. It was in, you know, Brian and I did. He had a bit part of the uh, Rob Zombie Halloween film, but I because I knew him from a lot of things growing up and uh you know, just a good character actor. Always playing a bad guy. I mean, it seems to be his lot in life to play the bad guy. But I, for years, I thought he was for it because he he just there's something about that face, man. It looks like a mask.
1: Yeah, he looks very. Slavic, I guess.
0: Yeah, yeah. And his his speech is that way. It's all done because we don't really get to know a lot of the backstory of old Rostov here. It's sort of piecemealed out to us through the film. But what's amazing is that they pull the one guy off the boat and, like, everybody gets shot. The kids, the women, the men, everybody gets gunned down. And Rostov has to make them, like, stop shooting.
1: Yeah, they're really, they're clearly enjoying the uh, whole murder thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's pretty violent. And
0: I I was also reminded of something here that, you know, we haven't talked to you about a ton, but we can get into now. Because I don't think the American Ninja films, those were kind of Saturday morning cartoonish, you know, with their violence for the most part, especially like that part three and stuff. Right. But this one is, I mean, it's is big time violent. Like there is. There is blood and gore on the screen, right I mean people are getting shot. It is quite jarring to look at right out of the gate, I think.
1: Yeah, it kind of sets a good well, not a good tone, but it sets the tone that the movie's obviously going for by being super like nihilistic and and bloody right off the bat. I mean clearly they that's that's a really cheap way to establish that Rostov is not, you know, someone to be trifled with and these guys are clearly uh, dangerous dudes. Yeah, the thing
0: is, is we don't really know what they're doing. Like, we come to learn that they're, they steal these drugs because they essentially sell them for, like, you know, arms or something like that. Like, at, even in the 80s, it was easy to get guns in America. Like, I don't know why they had to go through the elaborate Scarface plot to buy their army.
1: Yeah, I mean, you could get a... This is still back when you could get like the, the uh, fully automatic M sixteen with the tax stamp for like five hundred bucks.
0: Exactly. Yeah. You, I mean, you could buy everything that they use, and in fact, the, there's a joke in the film that all their military equipment is like retired Korean War material that they bought like from apparently like an Ollie North type or something. That's what we're led to believe, which I did find to be quite funny that, that they threw that in there. But
1: and I, it's and it's funny because I, I just pulled up the IMFDB. Uh, page for this movie which is really as long as your arm and probably longer (laughs) probably longer than the script uh one of the terrorists is using a bolt-action um mauser rifle from the german imperial army circa 1900 that is amazing
0: (laughs) i i will say this if you're a gun person this is your movie i like you know it is as a as a kid like you know action movies i was always obsessed with the hardware too i thought that was cool and all that stuff but th- i mean this movie is all about the bang bang shoot em up i mean there's every kind of weapon in the world the internet firearm movie database if y'all ever <laughs> looked that one up folks it's a field day with this film like it there's Every kind of thing known to man here, but the, what i don 't get and what i 'm trying to establish here i 'm looking for help from you is what is the centralized plot here i like, 'm not sure what the terrorist plot is
1: I believe that their plot is to uh destabilize the American government through these through what appears to be like a a massive Uh, guerrilla warfare terrorist style uh, series of attacks spread throughout the country and we only get the georgia miami florida whatever portion because that's the only portion where matt hunter is
0: okay Uh,
1: but but from what my understanding is this is happening throughout the country and that's why all the news breaks it talks about how uh, chaotic everything is and uh you know So-and-so, 15 people are dead in New York City or what have you. Uh, I mean, we're focused in the Southeast, but it was my understanding that this is happening all over the place.
0: Okay, see that's interesting. I did not get that from this, but I've never understood this to be like a nationwide problem. I thought, what a weird way to try to take over the country by coming into the Southeast. Like I grew up like a lot of people playing the game of risk, you know, the game of global domination. And no one comes through the the US to try to take anything. Everyone knows the Australian gambit is the way you win that game. And so (laughs) I mean that's either that or you get you get Africa. So I mean that's that's how you win that game. But I I don't know I, just, I always thought it was weird, and then, again, on the watching this time, I got it like you did in all the little news briefs that pop up that, that it's happening nationwide, and this is just what we're sort of localized in on here in this particular story. Um, that's the funny thing to me, too, or the interesting thing is that most of the exposition is not handled by the characters in this film. It's handled by the news cuts.
1: Kind of like RoboCop, how RoboCop uses the media break to – and the, the little television clips to set up a world –
0: Except not nearly as uh, effective, <laughs> if I may say so. So, uh, RoboCop served to be a like satire, right? This is all played straight.
1: It, it may as well be a satire because of how brainless it is. But it's—I <laughs> can only imagine that this was inspired by the the Mariel boat lift, where yeah. all, all the Cuban refugees came swarming in, and the fear that you know, all, when I was a kid, all I heard was like Castro opened up the prisons and the insane asylums, and he just. Put them all on boats and send them over to America.
0: It dumped everybody over here, like yeah, all all of his worst nightmares and problems. Yeah, so i I've heard, I always heard the same thing too. So I do think that's what this is playing off of, I and mean, they have some lines in there about how like oh, we're going to you know bring America to its knees by using its own freedom against it, and that's why they're saying about all the guns and stuff. But for the, the real clear to me in this first act is that for Rostov, this is all about. Like, he's got a, a side agenda for sure, right? Like, he wants to get revenge on the guy that has haunted him in his dreams for years. He wants to take out his old adversary, Matt Hunter. And Invading America is just kind of a byproduct of that mission.
1: This is his his Cobra Commander-style vendetta <laughs> against one man. Yes. To the detriment of the mission, because everybody's like, well, we can just, you know, blah, 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 let's just ignore him. And... Rostov clearly is not going to take that, even if Matt Hunter wasn't apparently interrupting every one of their activities in the area.
0: Yeah, and I mean, we'll, they definitely will come back to that in the what Hunter does. But that's the the kick at the end of the first act is that it, you learn that Rostov is a man that is. Haunted by it looked like I don't know if it's if that was a real occasion or if it's just what he assumed happens. We never really get a true flashback of those two facing off against each other, but every time it's a scene with Chuck Norris holding a gun to his head and with that one line, It's time, you know. And I I think that's the only thing Chuck says for like at least three fourths of the film.
1: If you count every time he says that, there's one line of dialogue, the amount of dialogue in the movie triples.
0: I mean really it, it it's it, it's like that's all they gave him to say or somewhere in the production of this he said look I'll do this but you're going to pay me a lot and I'm 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 just going to say this one thing I like this I'm hanging on to this line this line is my line. I do let's talk about Chuck Norris just for a sidebar for a moment. Where are you on Chuck Norris movies?
1: I think I think this is probably the best usage of Chuck Norris you could get at this time period because they don't make him try to have a romantic subplot with anyone really. <laughs> Uh, and they don't make him do any like emoting.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think I think you're right. I enjoy most of the Chuck Norris films that that I've come across too. I was a big fan of his kung fu films. I I like those. I've always found those to be quite interesting films and and lots of fun to revisit from time to time. But uh, you're right. The worst thing you can ask Chuck Norris to do is to not be a robot. Because that's essentially what he is in this. I think that's actually the failing of some of the mission and action films, is they try to give him way too much to do. And really, he really just, I mean, he is a presence. I mean, that meme is for a reason. And I, I honestly think this film has a lot to do with the, the length and the strength of that meme, that Chuck Norris can can do anything. and And with a gleeful smile and dead tone in his voice the whole time.
1: Yeah, I, I have no doubt that this movie is a, a significant influence on those memes cuz that's I mean, his beard is really concealing another fist in this movie and that fist is holding a gun.
0: <laughs> yes, a Mac Den as it were. So, <laughs> but I I love how though the CIA tries to get him back in and I, I now these plots this was Litter, I mean, littered throughout the eighties. You know, the, the good guy has gone into hiding. I mean, think about Commando. I think Rambo 2 is pretty much this plot. I mean, it's, there's, this gets recycled over and over and over again. So, I, but I actually kind of liked it because he blew him off. And that's the plot in every one of those films. I'm not interested until all of a sudden you get interested. But in all of those other ones, like, there's some personal reason to get in. Like for Rambo, it's you can go back and win Vietnam, Rambo. And for uh, Commando, it's they take Alyssa Milano, and you know Schwarzenegger's not going to let that happen. So, and to every teenage boy my age at the time, I was like, yes, go, go, uh, go, clearly, yes, go save her. But for Chuck Norris, it's they kill his alligator, alligator hunting friend, and blow up his house in the Everglades. That well, you reckon that mortgage was at least twelve thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah i mean i'm not i mean look people can live how they want to i live simply too i'm down for that fine but you know i just, i'm like it's what did he lose he didn't even have electricity he had candles um <laughs> uh, didn't he have a a bar he had a well he had a bar but
1: <laughs> but, yeah, I, but the house was
0: yeah the house was and, the, and
1: he, well maybe they killed his maybe his armadillo died
0: that he did have the pet armadillo, though. I saw it running around the wreckage and looking at the dead friend's oh, body. Okay, good. So, good. So, so the armadillo—no armadillos were harmed in the filming of Invasion USA. But now that's the thing—that that does lead us to the end of the first act. The CIA guy comes comes to get him out of retirement. You know, we think this is Rostov, and I lo- he does have a good line. It's better than it's time. It's, you should have let me kill him when I had the chance. And then it just, like, instead of cutting the way it should have, you have him sort of awkwardly half walk out of the scene, and then it cuts. <laughs> and I was like, well, somebody was clearly drunk in the editing room or in a real hurry, <laughs> because that was bad. But I like that move, because that makes me as, you know, I know what I'm getting when I pop this film in. You know, I, I know. Look, I know. I'm in for action ghetto here. So can it at least be entertaining? And that engages me because I'm like, well, what is their past? The problem is they never freaking explain it at all. What is Rostov and Hunter's past?
1: Um, clearly, they want to kill each other.
0: I <laughs> yeah, think. I mean, were they were they blowfield and Bond or something?
1: Probably. I mean, he does use uh, – uh, Rostov is wearing a suit. Maybe he is supposed to be like the super villainy type.
0: Yeah, he's got on a white suit too. So he's like – I don't know. He's supposed to be like, again, Miami. You know, That's funny. He's supposed to be like Russian or something, we think. But he – I don't know. He's hanging out in Miami. It's very strange what's, what's going on with the Rostov here for sure. But um, I don't know. I uh – I find that to be engaging again. And I think what really gets me here and what I like is that this first act kind of, kind of drags around this middle part. I really get into the film because what the terrorists go and do here is, and I, and not to make a light of it, is essentially what real terrorists go and do to cause havoc in their world. And it's sort of timely. I mean, You know, coming off of the end of 2014, we had the whole Ferguson thing in this country. And, you know, nowadays we keep up with the global news. The kind of stuff that these guys do, like going around and blowing up churches and shooting people's houses full of rockets while they're hanging out with their kids at night and blowing up the school buses and all this stuff, is the kind of stuff that real terrorists do. And on smaller levels has happened in America in our lifetime. So watching this now with that perspective gives this much more weight than I think it
1: did at its time. Then it was probably more of a shocking thing because it didn't seem like something that can happen in real life or alternately it was an easy way for people to dismiss the movie as just being dumb because you know there's no way you could get a, a rocket in Miami. You, you can't start a race riot just by gunning down a party of Cubans or whatever. Exactly, yeah.
0: That's a great point. Yeah, they, like They roll up dressed as cops and shoot the Cubans.
1: Yeah, or some sort of Hispanic. I'm not sure if they were Cubans or not, but since it's in Miami, I can only assume that they were Cubans. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna go with
0: it. we're gonna go with Cubans. So on that, or or Haitians or whatever. They're they're Latinos in the Miami area, and they they do that like you said because they're dressed up as cops. Now, when the real cops show up, what happens? The remaining crowd like throws rocks at them, and they basically just run off and leave the people because <laughs> right, they're not yeah, they're, they're dealing with that.
1: Yeah, they, yeah, they run them off. It's um, pretty effective example of uh, mob violence. You see this a lot. Um, this seems like it's happening a lot in Iraq to, um, to destabilize, again, to destabilize the central government. You turn you know, sect against sect. In this case, you turn Cubans or whatever, Hispanics against the police department, the people who were there to actually stop the crimes. Uh, and I'm sure, and I believe this is what they did um, in, in other locations as well. They kind of did this, I, I have no doubt they did this throughout the country. Because there's a lot of talk of like race riots and that kind of thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I mean they, they go on and on about that. And I actually, do you think that's one of the the neater parts of that exposition-heavy um, <clears throat> newscast that keep uh, bumping in from time to time? Is that it gives us <clears throat> a sense of just how grand scale this thing is. But what's amazing to me is, and I think it it is the limitations of the budget or whatever. We don't even get like a good map of like Rostov and Nico sitting there drawing around going like, well, the Colorado front is going real well. And, you know, I mean like they, they seem to only be in their little area. So it makes me wonder, is there somebody above Rostov that's you know supposed to be leading this group? Is it, is it coming out of somewhere else or are they really just an offshoot of mercenaries
1: they're not really acting i mean they they seem to act like rostov is the most important person in the whole operation right so i don't see he's not protected like he is though that's the problem that's true yeah maybe he's too much of a loose cannon to maybe he keeps shaking off his protection detail
0: I guess I could see that because he does shoot the one guy, you know, multiple times in the in the crotch when he gets mad at him. So, which
1: was yeah, yeah I, I, that's not a good way to engender loyalty among your followers. No, it,
0: no, it's not. But it is a good way to make them scared of you. So, if, if that's what you want to inspire, if that you know look on your face as if you just walked out of a fire didn't didn't do it, then that certainly would you know accomplish that goal, Rostov. But I don't know. I I love the I. I I don't love it. I I like these attacks, though, because it does give what they do weight. Most of the time in these kind of movies, like, the success of the bad guys is always seemed to be very limited, right? And in this one, I mean, they – Raise hell all through the southeast. With the you, you mentioned the race ride in Miami, they go to the. I think that's supposed to be like you know northern Florida or southern Georgia or something. They go to the the neighborhood and like literally kids are putting the star and Jesus on the Christmas tree, and somebody fires an RPG into the house. And I I know rocket propelled grenades can do a lot of damage. I don't really think a blow up a fifteen hundred square foot house like that, but it did look cool, and it does give that sense of gravity to just how dangerous these guys are.
1: The dad had a very, uh, big turpentine manufacturing plant in his garage. (laughs) So yeah, that's clearly what made the house explode. It was, it was the first meth lab explosion in Florida.
0: (laughs) I, that is a, that is an excellent point. I hadn't thought about that. So (laughs) it definitely could have been, it could have been, uh, uh Heisenberg's house for all we know so <laughs> cuz that was some straight up Malcolm in the Middle style uh you know uh neighborhood that they had going on there
1: so that's that, that was the house that was the house of Mr. Joseph Meth inventor of meth. there we go there we go but yeah the, that's the thing that
0: gets me is here is how I, I don't know how the terrorists are to start with like i i found that to be i don't know jarring a little bit cuz again like they usually don't don't have that level of success when they're, uh, you know, in their initial attacks. They usually get one quick hit and then they're done. And in this case, I don't know, it just seemed like they, they got a lot more damage done before it finally got Rostov out. And let me ask you, is it just the killing of his friend or is the killing of his friend and compounded on top of all of the the other stuff he's seen on the news that gets him out of retirement.
1: I think it's simply the killing of his friend because, I mean, he knew that bad things were happening. I mean, I don't think he missed, you know, I don't think Matt Hunter missed the, the news for all that time. I, I, I think really it, from the way he behaves, it seems like it's a personal vendetta. I mean, yes, he does save some school bus full of children and stuff, but he also just kind of indiscriminately starts firing his Uzis at the mall. Uh, so it it seems to me like it's just a purely personal let's get Rostov kind of thing, and each each little activity he interrupts is another step closer to drawing Rostov out.
0: Well, and it, I mean that's what he says to the CIA suit at the little diner hut or whatever that before that he leaves. You know, three minutes before it gets attacked, how convenient. So <laughs> that, that he's like, okay, but I will work alone, and I was like, well, okay, I, no, I don't think that's gonna fly. <laughs> I think they're gonna be like, um, yeah, okay, whatever. You're, you're taking somebody with you this time, so you gotta have, you gotta call in, you gotta check in with us, something, you know. And I don't, I don't know. It was just sort of weird because the thing is, is that when Chuck Norris goes into CIA mode here, man, like he just sort of pops in and out of scenery, like as if he were to just appear and reappear <laughs> different places. He doesn't seem to have like a base of operation. That's what gets me.
1: He, he seems to magically show up whenever there's trouble.
0: Yeah, that's really, really odd. It's like he knows exactly where they're going to go. And that's what gets me. I'm like, was this like a plot that Rostov maybe told him about over drinks or something sometime? And he's like, well, I remember they said they were going to go after the mall, so that's where I'm going to go next. And then they were going to go after the school, so I'm going to, you know, talk, uh, you know, cute with that uh, reporter, redneck lady, and and then uh, independent journalist lady, and then, uh, you know, let her hit on me while I walk away in disgust, you know, after I save her life life and murder other people for no reason. I don't know. It's, it's strange. I
1: like to think that it's in a smarter movie. I think that would have been a sign of just how widespread the activities are, that you literally cannot go anywhere without something terrible happening pretty much anywhere you go. Uh, in this movie, I think we're just they didn't have any real urge to shoot filler scenes. <laughs> yeah, there is none. Yeah, that's a good. so one. they decided to just have him walk from uh you know or drive from terrorist attack to terrorist attack just completely willy-nilly without even bothering to you know have much plot aside from throwing Billy Drago out a window
0: <laughs> i had a friend in high school that had a truck very similar to the one matt hunter drives and every <laughs> time i saw him coming i would just sort of hum the theme in my, my head privately because I sort of knew what was happening. It was very funny, but yeah, you're right. He just sort of drives around place to place. He seems to, you know, thwart all these attacks, and some of them are humorous, though. Like you've got everybody running into the church and stuff, and like this is very, you know, again, having grown up in the South, like I remember when there were national tragedies and stuff, like you. The Church would just open up, and everybody would just come in, and we would just have like a you know prayer service just it was just a place where people could go and be together was the whole point of it and so it that 's very much part of like Southern culture, I think and stuff, and so I see that, and i 'm going like, yeah i we' probably probably been in that one, and they 've got the bomb set up outside of it, and when it doesn 't work, what is amazing is the amount of time these guys give him to drop it back down on them and go, there must have been something wrong with it." It'll work now. (laughs) And like he drops it, they look at it, then he reconnects the wires, fixes a ham sandwich, and it blows up. I mean, it's, it's one of the, it's, it's hilarious, but I remember that being in like the television trailers, you know, but they'd cut it faster. It was like him dropping the suitcase, the guys turning around and then boom, he'd hit the wires and it would explode, but it didn't have the comedy in the middle. That, that's what makes it work. I'm, I, you know, otherwise I'd be like, this movie is so pretentious. It's ridiculous, but it's the way Chuck Norris plays it. I think he knew, look, this is ridiculous and I don't care. <laughs> so he just right. went with it. So, because look, you know, he's his younger brother helped write the script and stuff like that. I think Aaron Norris did a lot of Chuck stuff. And I've always sort of took that as Chuck's way of not having his name tied to it, but having say and
1: how things went on the story. That that seems like a very reasonable thing to me. I mean, his, his brother was also one of the producers on uh, Walker, Texas Ranger. uh you know, his brother was the writer of like Lone Wolf McQuade, oh, uh, <laughs> yeah, or some kind of crew on like. Lone, yeah, he was a producer on Lone Wolf McQuade. I'm sorry, uh, but it, but anyway, yeah, it's I don't know. I I like the
0: the balance of the humor and stuff here, and they do give him one scene. You know, we said the thing that makes this work mostly is that they don't ask Chuck Norris to act, really, and that's a wise move because he. I don't know that he really can, but they give him this one thing where he, all you see is him in the CIA suit again at this. It looks to have been like your standard, you know, uh, county fair or whatever <laughs> that, ha- that has been gunned to pieces. Like there's no bodies or anything and no police tape, but there's just like signs of explosions on the Tilt-A-Whirl.
1: As if that wasn't every tilt-a-whirl yes. every county fair.
0: <laughs> I know. I, I mean, I, I remember watching this and going, that that looks pretty much like they look all the time. <laughs> like, I think they had to, I'm sure when they got the material, like the day they rented it, they are like, you know, that'll just do.
1: <laughs> we should just shoot that. <laughs> yeah, we were going to rub some soot on it, but now I guess we don't really have to. Yeah,
0: it seems to have come with its own. So. <laughs> So, I can see the production meeting where the designer goes to Joseph Zito, the director of, you know, such gems as Friday the 13th, the final chapter, and says to him, hey, Joe, we don't have to dirty up the the carnival equipment. Who knew? You know, so. Uh, but but it is this moment though where they ask him to emote like he acts like he's mad because he can't stop every single attack and this is when I, I, if the CIA suit had any sense at all he would go well this is what you get for working alone if you would tell us all the stuff that you apparently know that might help us thwart the plan because <laughs> what will what happens in the third act is the most amazing part of this all 50 governors from around the the US not the president the joint chiefs the state governors wait, was this the reagan 80s or what the governors band together to decide what they're going to do with the the national Guards. <laughs> that, that's how this goes down the army doesn't get involved the national guard gets involved
1: i i'm just going to believe that they chose to do governors because they couldn't get the army's permission to use, to use any you know equipment or uniforms or They got absolutely no cooperation from the U.S. Army. They're like, well, who can we get? I don't know. Georgia National Guard's not doing anything. All right, let's let's uh, National Guard then. National Guard solve the state problems. Federalism.
0: Yeah, that's what I love though. Is, and I've always read that is this though is that well in America our military is so ba that like our weekend warriors can take out the terrorists.
1: You know that works too, yeah. which is
0: which is totally the opposite of like First Blood, which is you know if you've ever seen that movie, I mean, and if you've read the book subsequently. John Rambo like destroys that National Guard. He kills all of them in the book. And he pretty <laughs> much does in the film too. It just doesn't show any of it. And it's it's kind of implied violence. where he could have whacked them, but he didn't, you know, or whatever because that's Stallone's shtick. but I I mean that's that was the thing is that you, you put these guys up here against me and this is what's going to happen. And you know, I've got family that have served in both the guard and the full-time regular army stuff. And they'll all tell you, you know, these guardsmen are real. They're the real deal. They do some good stuff, but if you put them up against a real military, that's it's not going to last really long. That's like people that say like college teams could beat pro teams. No, they couldn't. The worst pro team would mop any bad, any good college team off the floor. It's just how it, how it works. And that's the difference here. But I do find that humorous that it's the national guard that ultimately gets in the game and saves the day. And I, I take that. It's very much, Again, part of the Reagan 80s, states' rights, less big government part of the world. I mean, it's a different time. You could not make that today and anyone buy it
1: at all. No, not at all. I mean, just look at the flack that uh, Avengers got for not having the army involved.
0: Oh, well, look at the flack like Man of Steel got for all the... Destruction in the city, you know.
1: Oh, right. Yeah, Yeah.
0: you know, still getting that flak, and and yeah, somewhat deservedly so. But yeah, you're right. I mean, like, at what point would the military not intervene? (laughs) I mean, when 9/11 happened, commercial airlines were done by 11 o'clock that day. I mean, there was nothing moving. There was nothing going on. This goes on for seemingly what weeks. And everything's just kind of eh, rolling along. Hope we don't get attacked today on the way to the supermarket.
1: But they did have that one scene where there was a like food shortage.
0: Yeah, they were they were rationing food because apparently there had been some kind of supply line cut. But yet, no one looked like they were really. I mean, that that didn't look like hunger strike going on out there. It was more like we don't have two loaves of bread today.
1: So, yeah, you know? it, it looked what it looked like to me is. It looked like an attempt to stop people from panicking and buying everything in the store. Exactly. You know, the usual it's going to snow kind of <laughs> calamity that happens in the south.
0: Indeed, indeed. And this last winter is a grand example of that. So, uh, Great point. Now, we've got to talk about one of the attacks, though, that really sort of sums up the the. The act two ends with him sad at the carnival that's been blown up. But let's talk about the attack on the shopping mall. Can we? Cause you, you've already called it the blues brothers driving through the shopping mall attack. That is, (laughs) that is one of the best orchestrated action scenes in this film. And it is definitely what I think of when I think of Golan Globus at their best is staging these things where you've got trucks and cars and glass blowing everywhere and guns. And just, I mean, there's, there's a full fledged firefight in the middle of the Regency square mall or whatever it is. And I I am thoroughly entertained by everything that goes on here because Matt Hunter can drive his, his four by four truck with one arm, shoot a Mac 10 Uzi, which is an incredibly unreliable weapon (laughs) as far as like shooting straight out the window with his left hand and he's taking people down like Doc Holliday,
1: you know. Well, he still has his um, I don't know if you noticed, but his, his Uzis are on a customized shoulder rig. So there's like a stable. The reason why he's holding them so close to his body is because there's like a stabilizing strap to keep them in place. Right. So I figure that's magic. That's a magical leather strap. <laughs>
0: It, uh, the only other one that's more magical is the one that Stallone wears at the end of Cobra. If you've ever seen that, <laughs> uh, and the yes. and, and the JT Matic that he rolls out and takes down the the motorcycle gang with axe murdering <laughs> going on too. I don't. Know. That's a, we'll maybe get to that one one day too. That there's a lot to talk about in that film. But I don't know. I love the whole shootout at the, at the shopping mall here. I I think it's it's well done and it's well staged again. And this is when martial law gets declared. Cause it's, it's not until then, like nothing else is brought it out, but dang, I mean, you, you interrupt the, the Christmas shopping in America and it, it's martial law.
1: That's, that's when you know it's trouble.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Black Friday is now, now been destroyed by the terrorists. So they, they must intervene.
1: The Avondale mall and the uh, <laughs> stores anchor, like under the anchor section, when it talks about the mall, It talks about the Invasion USA footage. The Sears had apparently closed and they were going to renovate. So while they were renovating the mall, they decided to just shoot a Chuck Norris movie in the mall. (laughs) So he crashes through the mall's main entrance. He drives around near one end of the mall. Uh, the The escalator scene was shot inside the Sears building. And then the exit crash was out through the Sears on the first level. So basically, they were like, "Well, we're, we're rebuilding this Sears. Can we just wreck it?" And the mall was like, "Sure, Chuck Norris. We love cocaine."
0: <laughs> I think a lot of those things mixed together to probably make that decision. Uh, and maybe he just did some good, good renovation for him. It was like, look, we don't have to bring guys in. Chuck's just going to drive through it. So um, I'm convinced that the uh, the housing project that gets destroyed at the beginning of Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift was was. You know, soon to be leveled, and they just let the uh, Lucas Black kid and the kid from uh, um, Home Improvement just drive through it, destroy it. So it's not it's not uncommon to see in a film. Um, But yeah, you know what? Hey, they're they're gonna blow it up for us anyway. Sure. So uh, what would be funny is if you could go see that mall today to see if they had like you know pictures or plaques of Invasion
1: USA. Sadly, no. It. it, after, after the terrorist attack, the mall's business declined.
0: I would say that that probably would, yeah. So I mean, uh, you know, uh, every airline in this country took a nosedive stock-wise after nine eleven. Not to be a bad pun there with nosedive, but I mean, really, <laughs> I mean, they all they all did. Like those those companies are are never going to be the same. So after that, so I yeah, I don't think the Sears would be ah would be rocking and rolling so uh, much more after this. Uh, this attack that went down, but it is, it is the big attack. And then finally, you know, we, like we said, the governors have rallied together in Atlanta and they've got a way to thwart the terror attacks. And the FBI takes Hunter into custody because they want him to tell them basically how he's destroyed. He's killed the Nico guy and how he's essentially you know, brought the the terrorism down to the the leaders, just crazy and looking for me. So, is, is the, the reason they take him in is it really just so they can draw Rostov out? Because doesn't he go? He goes on the news and says something about like, come and get me or something like that. It's very
1: Rocky Three. That was the only thing I could think is to lure him into this uh, secure ish location and kind of try to close the gates on him, so to speak. Uh, that seems to be the best. Uh the best explanation for it I could come up with. I mean, to me, it seemed like the whole – the 50 states, the governors are meeting together thing felt like a, just an elaborate plot anyway. Like like there were actually no governors there. They just made it up.
0: Yeah. Oh, no. I mean there's a closed room that I think has like a sign that's printed on like a dot matrix printer that says governors only or something. So because, I mean, this, yeah, they never go to that meeting. You know, where any of them would have been deciding this. It's just, again, it's told through news exposition. But this is all so we can get two things. We can get the big blowout with the National Guard and the uh, would-be army, if you you will, of uh, terrorists. And where they all just, at one point, just lay down arms, you know, at at the right moment because they know that they're done. So, yeah. Yeah. That's which clearly does not, you know, that never happens, but whatever. And we get the cat and mouse through the building with Hunter and Rostov. And uh, this is what it gets me is Rostov chooses as his weapon of choice in a closed quarters, you know, weapons battle. does He didn't pick up a pistol. He didn't get an automatic rifle. No, he has a, a bazooka, a straight up <laughs> one shot bazooka that he's going to chase Hunter around the building with.
1: It's it's the uh, the Golden Eye.
0: <laughs> you know what? I hadn't thought about that. That's where they ripped this off from. I knew it. I knew there was a reason I liked that game. So, uh, <laughs> but yes. it's way better than that movie, I'll tell you that. But uh, <laughs> the game gave that film a whole life it never had. So, yeah. But yeah, they chase each other around and I do like how Hunter like is so Like he, you know, it's not only him and Rostov, it's the boss battle, right? So he's got to go through all these other people too, you know? And at one point he has a grenade launcher and he shoots two guys through two separate walls at the same time just by sweeping it. I was like, see, years before Wanted came up with it. Before Angelina Jolie was bending bullets, Chuck Norris was bending rocket-propelled grenades. Well, that's,
1: you know, just another, uh, another Brick in the Chuck Norris meme (laughs) building. It's just... Chuck has control of
0: all physics. He's the Matrix at this point. Well, he might as well have been. Some of the stuff he was doing, and the fact that he, he has this one little cut above his eye that sort of trickles blood... And it's like, man, I mean, that's the one thing I think I always appreciated about John McClane is at the end of Die Hard films, he looked like he'd been run over a couple of times, you know, <laughs> as, as you would, you know, it's the one thing I always loved about Predator, too. At the end of that, Arnold Schwarzenegger looked terrible, so as as he should have in every other film he walked out of. But,
1: um, yeah, but I, well, you know, Chuck Norris, you know, Chuck Norris doesn't bleed. <laughs> well, so. but
0: apparently he does, but it like it stops in its track. It's like the blood knows it's got to go back in. So it, right. So it's so it like a U-turn <laughs> on his face.
1: The blood retreated out of fear.
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the fear of, of Chuck's beard. So, so we anywhere near that. So he, he sneaks up behind Rostov. And uh, this is what gets me is Rostov has a weapon armed, ready to go. What Hunter is going to kill him with is uh, commonly referred to as the Law Rocket. Now, when we get into our Dirty Harry retrospective, we're gonna look, we're gonna learn a lot about the Law Rocket. <laughs> There's gonna be a whole scene on it, cause Clint got obsessed with them apparently, and stuck them in one of those. But it's like three pieces, you have to unhook the back of it, slide out the tube, flip it open, and then it's ready to fire. And those three actions take at least a minute and a half for him to do. Now it may only take like a skilled person maybe in a minute to pull it off, but you know Chuck draws it out. But at no time does Rostov realize if I just turn around and shoot, this guy can't fire on me because he doesn't have the rocket arm. <laughs> so that's what got me. Is so I was like, if only Rostov had just swung around a little earlier, he would have had a shot.
1: He was trying to make a dramatic entrance, I guess.
0: I guess guess so, but that's what gets me, is he he stops him, and then he does the whole, it's time again. And I love Richard Lynch's, I don't know if it was his idea, or if Joseph Zito said, you need to do something here, dramatic. And all he can come up with is, it's like Cobra Commander.
1: Yeah, it's like you stepped on Cobra Commander's cat. It makes that noise. He,
0: he shoots him, and what gets me is that they they bother with the special effect of the window blowing out, and they apparently have like your you know your ninth grade science class skeleton going out the window with it because there's pieces of bone and a head and all this stuff. And I, you know, I'm not a weapons expert, but I'm pretty sure that rocket would have probably just gone through him.
1: Yeah, <laughs> you, you know? would think that, or or if the rocket had hit him and it had triggered the. Uh pressure explosion, it would have just... There would be no whole skeleton. There would be, like, charred bits.
0: More, moreover, Chuck Norris is, would you say, 10 feet from him? Maybe? Maybe? <laughs> he, Chuck would have something on him. <laughs> like, there would be pieces of Rostov on Chuck's... But We haven't even talked about his blue jean shirt and blue jeans.
1: Yeah, the uh, Canadian Special Forces uniform. <laughs> he... he well, I mean, clearly that's just another example of, of Chuck Norris's control of the laws of physics.
0: There's a wall around him; it just bounces
1: off of him. Right. He just looks at the the explosion, and it kind of bends around him like uh, Invisible Girl in, um, and
0: <laughs> Fantastic Four.
1: Fantastic Four. Yeah.
0: He's Sue Storm now, too. So, he's, or, or Bella in, in Twilight, if you've seen any of that, because so, uh, she can do the same thing. So, <laughs> oh, spoil, spoiler! Anyway, so. Um,
1: I can't believe you just spoiled America's like the most classic film series ever.
0: But that's how it is, though. That's what gets me, is that there's no like big scene at the end where he's walking through the turmoil and the hot reporter. Like, where does she go? He kills Nico in the parking lot, and she's like, thanks a lot, cowboy, and we never see Melissa prophet again. <laughs> she's just out of this story. Did she have something else to go shoot? <laughs> <laughs> she was, I, I, I kind of gone. doubt that. <laughs> I know. I'm like, she is gone from this film. I, yeah, I needed her to run up at the end and like at least try to hit on him again. <laughs> and I'm like, man, not interested. I'm going back to the swamp with my armadillo or maybe just pick the armadillo up and get in a military truck and drive off. So all we see is Chuck standing out the window as the army or as the National Guard rounds up what's left of the terrorists in Atlanta and that you know credits roll.
1: She should have came she should have come staggering out from behind a sandbag covered in little pieces of raw stuff.
0: Yeah, with her camera.
1: <laughs> you know, right.
0: Taking, taking pictures. <laughs> Because that's, that's sort of our old character motivation is to wear boots and to take pictures. So, but, well, I think we're at the part of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So what are yours for Invasion USA?
1: I have to say that this is probably this. – I've said it before, and, I, and I, can only, I, I can't emphasize it enough. This is like the best possible usage of Chuck Norris. He, sh- <laughs> he shows up, and he looks awesome. He fires a bunch of interesting-looking guns at a bunch of vaguely ethnic people. And then stuff blows up, and he leaves, and he said ten words through the whole movie. Uh, you know, I think, I think the whole purpose of the reporter girl was to have someone talking on screen while he says, yes, no, go away, Rostov, time to die. <laughs> I mean, it was clearly – this was clearly a movie designed to make a talking Chuck Norris because uh, you could cram everything he says in the film onto the memory chip of one of those 80s pull-the-string dolls. Yes. Like a talkie Tina type, but with Chuck Norris with little plastic goozies. Um, but, you know, all that all that aside, it's really a fun movie. Uh, well, fun in a nihilistic sort of way. <laughs> it's like, you know, the ultimate Golan Globus cocaine action movie blowout. I I, got to give it a large popcorn. I got to go a large popcorn because I had a good time and there was no plot to get in the way of the action, as Joe Bob Briggs always said.
0: (laughs) I I will say this. Of the Chuck Norris 80s action run, this one is a hidden gem amongst them. I think it's a forgotten one. I don't know how many people know about this film. Uh, but I agree with you that it is one that if you're into that kind of thing, if you like those types of films, this should be seen, it should be owned. It should be in your rotation. You and I are going to personally spike the sales of this on Amazon, by the way, somebody at, at what's left of Canon films is going to go, what the heck we need another one. But anyway, so I, I agree with you. It's, it is one of the best ones of that era of Doris. And it's it's a lot of fun. And I'll say this too. I think there's actually something here. I like I know they can't do it anymore because the circumstances just today we'd never believe, you know, most of this going on or whatever. But if there ever comes a time again when we're At a place of peace where we can, you know, have entertainment that's as goofy as this is with such, you know, serious issues as domestic terrorism and stuff like that. This would be one to go back and revisit because I think there's a story here too. I mean, I think if you actually had people that could act, you could have a real fun story with the Rostov versus Hunter tale before they ever wind up. You know, chasing each other with rocket launchers in Atlanta. So,
1: oh I, yeah, you could definitely, you could definitely flesh this out into a really good movie.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, you get, I mean, really, like get somebody like Tom Hardy in it, you know, something like that. I mean, you could have some some good stuff with with this. And so, I am going to join you in that bucket of large popcorn. I, you know, I normally would say that there's nothing large popcornish about anything golden Globus because they seem to be like geared to be medium or small popcorns from the start. But occasionally because of circumstances and just the right time and stuff, things work. And this is definitely a film that is a product of its time, but if you can go there with it and if you, especially if you remember it like you and I do it, it's, oh, yeah. it's, it's, it's very enjoyable to watch. And, and I say it's a lot of fun and Again, there's nothing to get in the way of good of a good action. That's the problem today is good action films get ruined by the unnecessary personal subplot of my girlfriend's also cheating on me or you know whatever else you know or the high school quarterback and you know, whatever uh, all this other stuff that you know plot. So as they say, um, this one just gets right down to it and it lasts a good while too. So it's a lot of fun. I'm going to join you with the large popcorn. Now they have a sequel to this that. I didn't know existed until you told me it did. And Michael Dudikoff is going to take up the reins as Mad Hunter. <laughs> and I am, you know, we've had an interesting run here with Dudikoff in the three of the American Ninja films he was in. Um, I think we actually gave him kind of a pass on the second and the last one for for being, you know, okay for what they were. But, uh, but uh, um, I'm curious to see if there was something else to do, because I'll tell you in this Matt Hunter character always reminded me of like, what I would see in the dime store, like action novel paperbacks, you know, Mac Bolan and the 44 killer and all this stuff, you know, these action stony, heroes,
1: stony man. Exactly. Yeah. yeah.
0: And I was like, I could see this guy having other adventures. So much like I did the American ninjas. So I'm, I'm like, okay, I, I see this movie. It made some money and it was, it was a success. I mean, it, it got like another 11 million in the uh, domestic, you know, rental stuff. Cause this was when, you know, written movies became a huge thing in the, in the mid eighties. And so this one had a whole lot of life after that. So I could see why Golden Globus said, yeah, let's, let's do another one. Let's do a sequel to that. And Chuck wanted
1: no part of it. <laughs>
0: so, so they came back with Michael Dudikoff because, you know, he had some extra time, I guess.
1: <laughs> Chuck was down, but he was busy shooting, um, I believe he was shooting uh, Delta Force. Oh, Barry! So he interesting. was so he was already trapped up in, a, in another Golan Globusy movie. <laughs> so they're like, "Well, who do we have just hanging around in the Philippines?" Oh right, it's good old what's his name.
0: So, can he grow a beard? Nah. So, yeah.
1: but, uh, we don't have time for him to grow a beard. Exactly. I mean, he's got to get back and finish shooting American Ninja Three.
0: Exactly. So, because that one. So does Steve James, for that matter. So we're going to get him back. Uh, there's going to be lots of stuff. I'm looking forward to talking about Avenging Force because it is a. T- it's rare to find a new thing for me, and I am. I am. Uh, I am Excited about the idea of a new movie, or at least something new to me to talk about on this next show. So, folks, thanks for joining us in this latest edition of Film Strip. You can find more episodes at our website, continuousplaypodcast.com. There you'll find links to the Film Strip show, to the Fabish Factor film podcast. You'll also find links to The Art of Slaying, our Buffy the Vampire Slayer retrospective, and Squared Circle Flashbacks, Brian, uh, Brian Thomas's wrestling podcast. It's our latest venture from Continuous Play. As always, you can hook up with us on Facebook or Twitter. Let us know what you think of the show. And leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other people find the podcast. Until next time, for Ron, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Film Strip.